19 officers, 78 minutes, and countless unanswered questions. The lead starts right now. Growing scrutiny on police and their response, or lack thereof, to the Uvalde massacre. Did officers know children were trapped inside a classroom with the killer? Did anyone push back on the chief's call for them to wait in the hallway? What new audio recordings might reveal? Plus, hunt for the leak. Supreme Court clerks asked to hand over their cell phone records as investigators try to track down the person who leaked the pending opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade also ahead. Why experts warn we could see blackouts this summer in the United States and which areas are at highest risk? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our national lead and new questions about what exactly police on the scene knew and when during the Uvalde massacre as the community begins to say its final goodbyes to some of the 21 victims. The visitations begin today for 48-year-old teacher Irma Garcia and two 10-year-old students, Navia Alyssa Bravo and Jose Manuel Flores Jr. The funeral for their classmates, Amory Joe Garza and Maite Rodriguez, are also planned for today. We're still waiting for more information from law enforcement, including a ballistics report and radio transmissions from the scene, not to mention basic details, how many kids were wounded, how many students came out of the classroom alive, and on and on. CNN has also obtained a Facebook Live video recorded outside the school during the shooting. It appears to include a radio call from a child saying that he or she had been shot. Are you injured? I'm A group of bipartisan lawmakers are meeting today to see if they can find any common ground at all on potential new gun legislation in the wake of this horrific attack. President Biden confirmed earlier today that he's going to meet with lawmakers about the possibility of new gun reform. I've been to more mass shooting aftermaths than I think any president in American history, unfortunately. And it's, uh, it's just so much of it is much of it is preventable and the devastation is, is, is amazing. CNN's Ed Lavendera starts off our coverage from Uvalde with more on today's services and a new interview with a teacher who saw the shooter approaching the school. You cry and you mourn harder here because they didn't have a chance. The first funerals for the victims in the mass school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, were held today, one week after a gunman stormed Robb Elementary, killing 19 students and two teachers. When that casket closes and that they lower it down, for me, it's the realization that you won't be able to touch them again. One more hug, one more kiss, one more goodbye. The funeral expenses for every family are being covered at no cost thanks to an anonymous donor, according to Texas Governor Greg Abbott. A family-run company has made custom caskets for 19 of the victims, capturing their personalities. Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you how many, but I think one every day. Father Eduardo Morales says he will preside at 12 funeral services for victims over the next two weeks. Today, visitations or funerals were held for at least four students and one teacher. On Friday, it was revealed there were at least eight 911 calls from two callers inside the school. The calls came in as 19 officers waited outside the classroom where the gunman was for 50 minutes. 
That's when a Customs and Border Protection team made the call to go in without direct orders, according to a Texas state senator. One teacher is now describing the tense moments inside her classroom after spotting the gunman outside. I just kept hearing shots fired and I just kept praying, God, please don't let him come in my room. Please don't let him come in this room. And for some reason, he didn't. We are also hearing new audio taken by a man who spoke to CNN but didn't want to be publicly identified. A Facebook Live video includes what he says is audio from the radio in a Customs and Border Protection vehicle outside the school. It is not clear at what point during the shooting this video was taken. Are you injured? Why uh, law enforcement did not uh, uh, take action is, is beyond me. The Texas Department of Public Safety director said on Friday it was the school district police chief, Pete Arredondo, who made the decision not to breach the classrooms earlier. Arredondo is facing harsh criticism for what officers didn't do when they responded to the shooting. One little girl, I won't say who, received only one gunshot wound through the, her lower back. Uh, the first responder told the family that she likely bled out. That little girl might have lived had law enforcement done their job. And Jake, the first funeral service is just now getting underway, and that is for Emery Joe Garza. And as we were at one of the funeral homes earlier today, uh, watching the procession of people walking into a viewing, what really struck us was the number of small children walking inside to these funeral homes to say goodbye to their friends, far too young to be doing something like that. Jake? At Levandera in Uvalde, Texas, thank you so much. CNN's Shimon Prokopes is also in Uvalde following the latest on the investigation. And Shimon, we, we heard that recording reportedly of a, of a radio transmission where a child is saying he or she was shot. What could we potentially learn from the full cache of transmissions? And, and do we know if police are going to release them? We don't know, Jake, if the police are going to release them. Um, you know, this is something that a state senator here now is calling for the release of this of these audio tapes, it's very significant because it will tell us what officers were saying to each other. Were the 911 operators, which we believe they were, telling the officers that there were, they were receiving 911 calls from people inside that classroom that were alive, that were still facing the threat from the gunman? Uh, we know there were several 911 call, calls from that class. So these tapes would reveal to us if the 911 dispatchers were relaying this to the officers on the scene which would 100% indicate that this was an active shooter situation, uh, not as what police have initially said, that this was a barricaded subject, which they should have treated differently. Okay. A lot of blame has been placed on the Uvalde school police chief who, who made this final call to hold officers in the hallway instead of doing what post-Columbine protocols say, which is to, to rush where the shooter is. Do we know if anyone in a person of authority at the time challenged that bad decision right we don't know jake and that's something that many people here want to know obviously from the state senator to other law enforcement officials who i've been talking to just all across the country some retired still uh, currently working saying that why weren't more senior level people with people with more experience than the school chief making these decisions why was he allowed to sort of make this decision on his own 
he didn't maybe perhaps know everything, but there should have been other people at the scene chiming in, giving their opinion. And that is something that certainly uh, investigators want to know. They want to know if other level, senior level, other law enforcement officials were weighing in to sort of try and override this chief. This chief who is uh, in charge of essentially a very small police department, Jake, four police officers. Uh, we don't know what his experience is in dealing with such a situation. And so that is why so many people want to know why weren't more senior level people, people with more experience on scene, voicing their opinion of what should be done. Jermaine Brokebez in New Valde, Texas for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss is Jillian Peterson. She's the co-founder of the Violence Project, which studies mass shootings and the best ways to potentially prevent them. Thank you so much for joining us. You talk about this idea that mass shootings are socially contagious. Does that mean that you think it's possible or even likely that the Uvalde shooter may have been motivated by the horrific murders by the Buffalo gunman? Yeah, I think it is likely, although we don't know yet. But our research shows that mass shootings are socially contagious. They tend to cluster. So when one happens, you see two or three more happen right afterward. And part of this might be somebody who's thinking about this, who's maybe planning it. They're kind of right on the edge. They see somebody else do it. They see the attention that perpetrator gets. They see their manifesto go viral. And that's enough to embolden them to then also carry out a mass shooting. So you've done this very detailed research and you have found that most mass shooters fit a specific profile. Tell us more. Yeah, we see this similar pathway to violence. Our research is really focused on understanding who these perpetrators are, where they're coming from, what their lives look like building up to this point so we can really start preventing it. And we see that perpetrators do have this similar pathway. They start out in households with a lot of violence, um, sexual assault, parental suicide, that kind of lays the foundation over time as they get older, they're often isolated, depressed, kind of hopeless. Many of them attempt suicide. Then that self-hate kind of turns outward. It becomes whose fault is this? Um, whether they blame their school, their workplace, or a racial group, or women. They spend time online studying other shooters, getting radicalized, oftentimes leaking their plans. And then mass shootings are designed to be a final act. They are meant to be watched and witnessed so that their anger and their grievance of the world is something we all watch. And then, of course, they have access to the weapons that they need to carry it out. I want to get into that idea of uh, these shootings being a final act in a second. But first, I, I do have to note, both the shooters in Uvalde and Buffalo reportedly had a history of, of abusing cats. Does animal abuse or that type of violence fit into the normal profile that you say? You know, we do in our database that they, we've created have a column that looks at animal abuse. You do see it, not all the time, but a lot of it is dependent on how much information emerges about that perpetrator's background. But when it comes to school shooters, it is something that you do see. Now, back to the point you were making before about mass shootings uh, being intended quite often as a final act. In the wake of the shooting at Uvalde, some Republicans are calling for more armed security at schools. But you note that in your study, your research, mass shootings are a final act, an act of suicide, and having someone else with a gun on scene uh, won't stop them. In fact, it might actually be worse. Explain that for us. 
Yeah, this is something that we've studied closely and we've interviewed perpetrators of school shootings who told us, I went there specifically because I knew there was an armed officer there who was gonna kill me. Um, perpetrators go in planning to either kill themselves, be killed by law enforcement, or spend the rest of their lives in prison. Part of this is you have to be caught or killed in order to be known for this, in order to get the notoriety that you're looking for and make the history books. So when we've looked at this um, and looked at school shootings and attempted school shootings, what's remarkable is that when you have armed officers on the scene, you actually see more casualties. Often because that perpetrator is suicidal, they're familiar with that school, they know that officer is there, and so they come in heavily armed. Yeah, maybe having armed officers, but they're not armed openly would be some sort of uh, compromise uh, at this. Uh, Jillian Peterson, thank you so much. Really appreciate your research. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, punishing Putin for the war on Ukraine. World leaders are now cutting off oil supplies from Russia. Could that ripple effect, however, leave Americans in line to pay the price? Plus, the chances of widespread blackouts this summer and the model plan in one city that could help keep the lights on. Stay with us. In our world lead, you're watching new video of Ukrainian special forces flying resupply helicopters to the Azovstal steel plant while it was under siege by Putin's army earlier this month. These images show some of the extensive damage done to the plant and other areas of Mariupol by the Russians. Now there are, quote, battles along the entire front line, according to the Ukrainian military. CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance is live for us in Kiev. And, and Matthew, what, what are you seeing in the capital where you are, Matthew? I'm not sure that he can hear us. I'm back again. Matthew, can you hear us? All right, we're having some uh, issues here. Uh, Ma- Matthew, you, let's bring in uh, the House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman uh, Gregory Meeks. He's a Democrat from New York. We'll go back to Matthew after this uh, interview uh, with the chairman who just led a bipartisan trip to Europe. Uh, meeting with leaders in Moldova, which borders Ukraine. Chairman Meeks, thanks for joining us. You've also been to Ukraine twice, once before the invasion and once during. Um, What did you learn from your trip this time around? Is anything changing? No. What I've learned is a couple of things. Number one, we went to Moldova, and the uh, president and prime minister there are very much locked in uh, with uh, Ukraine, concerned as everyone else is about the uh, Black Sea and how it is being... Uh, bombarded and uh, by uh, by Putin, uh, but they're accepting and taking in all of the refugees that they can, uh, and uh, and and with open arms. Uh, then we went to uh, Davos, uh, where I saw that the, the EU and NATO allies and others united uh, behind uh, President Zelensky and the people of Ukraine. Uh, they were working collectively together, talking about how uh, we they have to stay together because of the, uh, the, the, not only the aggression, but the invasion of, of uh, Putin into Ukraine, and that they will stick with it, and that they will be continued and more sanctions applied. And we saw today that there were more sanctions uh, applied to Russia uh, in regards to, uh, to uh, oil. So uh, the pressure is continuing to mount. And of course, the other piece that is important Putin had to change his strategy. He thought that he could take Ukraine in two to three days and Kiev. Uh, he is not. He's downplayed now going to Donbass area. Uh, and uh, uh, there is a fight that's going on there. And that the president of the United States and others are uh, intent on making sure that we give 
the weapons to Ukraine that they need so they can defend themselves. Well, let's talk about that, because on Monday, President Biden said, quote, I won't send anything that can fire into Russia about the weapons he's willing to give Ukraine. Nothing that will fire into Russia. This is after Russia warned the U.S. that the U.S. would be seen by Putin as crossing a red line if it supplies Ukraine with the oft-requested long-range rocket systems. Now, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia under Obama, Michael McFaul, he's been vocal about, in his view, the need for rockets that can strike not only into Russia, but deep into Russia. Who do you agree with, President Biden or the former ambassador? Well, I think that President Biden is probably correct, uh, is correct. And I think that he's working with is our UN, uh, our uh, EU allies. What has been happening that I think that President Biden and history will record him doing is keeping our allies united. And as we've seen that they've having constant conversations uh, and working together and the key and, and, and compromise at times so that that unity stays together. The one thing that Putin did not count on was the unity between the EU countries and NATO. He thought that they can split them. But President Biden's leadership has kept them all together and slowly but surely uh, began to, uh, to, to up the ante uh, in regards to sanctions as well as weapons uh, that are necessary. Uh, so I think that President Biden uh, has been doing a great job uh, and we just need to hold the pace and keep uh, allowing him to do that job that I think that uh, now we're into the third month when many folks did not think we'd be here after three days or four days. The EU uh, is trying to punish Russia by banning most Russian gas imports by the end of this year. Uh, as a result, world oil prices jumped to the highest level in nearly three months. The U.S. is already facing extremely high gas prices. How much longer do you think Americans are going to have to foot the bill? Look, let me just tell you something. That inflation and high gas prices are all over the world. It is something because of Putin and Putin's war that is causing this uh, inflation and causing the cost of gas to be so high. fact of the matter is the people that are suffering the most are the Europeans who are completely or have been completely dependent upon uh, Russia's oil and Russia's gas, but now they are committed to weaning off. So I think that what is going to happen as we continue to choke the economy of Russia, as the Ukrainians continue to fight, that we are working and there's conversations that's being, uh, that is taking place as we speak for alternatives to of ways of getting additional uh, energy and, and gas, et cetera, so that we can eventually have the prices go down. But right now, yes, all of us around the world, not just America, but every country just about uh, that's in Europe, uh, a, a part of NATO, uh, others uh, are allies, whether it's in Asia or you know Canada, mm-hmm. we are all suffering from the aggression and the egregious war that's put on or led by Vladimir Putin. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that polls indicate uh, that the American people care much more about the economy and inflation here in the United States than they do about Ukraine, even if they support what the U.S. is doing. Inflation is clearly a thorn in the Biden administration's side, and the president is now deploying cabinet officials to tout the White House message on TV all week. President Biden penned an opinion article titled, My Plan for Fighting Inflation. Is the message coming from the White House enough as of now to answer the questions that you are no doubt getting from your constituents who stop to tell you, you know, I can't afford groceries or I can't afford to to fill up my tank. 
Yeah. Look, it's I can't deny that every day when you go to fill up your gas tank or go to your food, buy food, the prices have gone up in America and around the world. And it's not direct, not occurring because of the action or inaction of President Biden. It's happening because of Putin. And so what we've got to try to find the ways to do is to get through this. And this is why we're defending and giving the Ukrainians all the weapons that they need. And we're fighting back so that no one has to be dependent upon Putin's oil again. No one can be held hostage because of Putin's uh, uh, aggression. And it takes a little bit of time. And President Biden is working on that as we speak so that in, when we get closer to uh, July and August and September and October, there's alternative methods that have been worked on collectively mm -hmm. that begin to reduce uh, the reduce uh, inflation and letting the feds uh, giving them the freedom to do what they need to do so that we can begin to reduce inflation here in America. And I would add, Jake, that when I look at the United States uh, in comparison to other countries around the world that I just visited, there was no one better prepared to mm. deal with this than the United States. And in fact, we're doing better than most other countries around the world. Well, we're going to talk about it later in the show. We don't have time to go into it right now. But obviously, there are a lot of reasons for inflation, including supply chain issues and a lot of spending, as well as Putin's war. Congressman Gregory Meeks, the, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, always good to have you on, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jake. Good to be with you. Let's go back to Ukraine now and CNN's Matthew Chance in Kiev. Matthew, uh, glad we have the connection back. What are you seeing where you are? Well, Jake, you join me in the centre of Kiev, where the, there's this remnants of a ferocious battle right in the centre of the capital. But this is just these are these are the real deal. Of course, they're they're actually uh, destroyed Russian tanks and other equipment that's been scattered around here. But it's been put here as an exhibition by the Russian Defence Ministry to show Ukrainian people the kinds of weapons that have been threatening them, that have turned their lives upside down over the course of the past four months. But the fact they're destroyed as well, it's cement to show that the Russian army, which poses such a threat to this country, is not invincible. It's actually a tourist attraction. Uh, I was speaking to some people that were seeing it earlier and showing their kids uh, these twisted uh, rumpled hulks of metal. And they said the reason they're showing it, the reason they're coming here to see it is because seeing these uh, these destroyed tanks in this way makes them think that the Russian army can be beat. So they're sort of like monuments to hope uh, in the center of the Ukrainian capital at a time when there is still very ferocious fighting taking place, not so much in Kiev, but elsewhere in the country towards the east, Jake. Yeah, let's talk about that because just northwest of the city of Luhansk, there's a fierce battle ongoing for Severodonetsk, uh, what's the significance of this region? How much land has Ukraine lost to the Russians so far? Yeah, Severodonetsk, uh, very important in the sense that it's the last remaining big city, big town uh, in the Luhansk region. Luhansk is half of Donbass. Uh, Donbass, according to the Russians, is their military priority in the east of Ukraine. That's the area they want to take control of. And once they've got Luhansk, as looks likely over the coming days, they'll be able to turn around the Kremlin and say, look, we've achieved at least half of our goal. Now we've just got the other half to go. Um, and so that will be a big political win for them. And so the Ukrainians have been, you know, fighting virtually to the last man up there 
to make sure the price the Russians pay to take Luhansk is as high as possible. And even though the Russians say they've taken control of the city now, the Ukrainians insist they've still got people inside. They're still, you know, trying to take it to the streets and making it a very hard fight indeed. Extraordinary video that's come from Luhansk earlier today. First of all, of the Russians uh, in the center of the city, but then of this awful scene of a chemical dump that has apparently been exploded. Uh, a big orange plume of toxic gas pouring up into the air. The Russians blame the Ukrainians for detonating that. The Ukrainians blame the Russians. Who knows uh, what the reality is? But it just shows you just how awful the battle and potentially poisonous the battle is up there in, the, in, in northeastern Ukraine. Matthew, Putin's uh, critics have a way of ending up dead or in jail. Uh, one of them, jailed outspoken Putin critic Alexei Navalny, has a new round of charges against him. If he's found guilty, how much longer will he be in prison? Yeah, if he's found guilty of founding a, uh, you know, an extremist organization, he could face another 15 years in prison. He's already in prison for nine years on essentially trumped up charges. Another 15 years, I mean, a, a disaster for the opposition in that country. All right, Matthew Chance in Kiev, thank you so much. Coming up next, the only verdict so far in a case three years in the making. Stick with us. In our politics lead, not guilty. That is the verdict in the first and so far only trial to come out of a probe by special counsel John Durham that has lasted more than three years. The prosecutor picked by former Trump Attorney General Bill Barr to investigate the origins and the Justice Department's handling of the Trump-Russia investigation. The defendant, Michael Sussman, a former lawyer for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, was charged with lying to the FBI during a 2016 meeting in which he passed a tip about Trump and Russia. CNN's Evan Perez joins us now live. And Evan, this is a it's a big defeat for Durham's probe. Where does the investigation stand now? It is a big defeat, uh, Jake, but there was more than just the lie that was uh, the subject of this 11 days of trial here. Uh, if you look on right-wing media, you will see the fruits of what John Durham was trying to do here, and that is uh, you know, make the point that in 2016, Hillary Clinton's campaign uh, was part of a, a big conspiracy with Sussman and others playing a role to use the media and the FBI to go after Donald Trump. That's very much, you, you heard it dozens of times, uh, the prosecutors used either Clinton's name, Clinton campaign, Hillary for America. They repeatedly did that in, during the trial. In the end, according to the jury, that didn't matter because it, they didn't prove their case. Uh, but you can listen to Michael Sussman here uh, after the verdict uh, talking to the cameras today. I told the truth to the FBI, and the jury rec clearly recognized that with their unanimous verdict today. I'm grateful to the members of the jury for their careful and thoughtful service. Despite being falsely accused, I'm relieved that justice ultimately prevailed in my case. And Jake, a couple of uh, reporters caught up to the jury foreman af woman after the, the, the verdict, and she said essentially that this was a waste of time. But... The, the larger point that you're trying to make, you're trying to say Durham made, which is that the Clinton campaign and associates of the Clinton campaign took opposition research, right. dirt, vetted and unvetted, true or not true, and tried to get it into the media. And by, the FBI. And the FBI by shopping it around. They did do that, right? They did do that. It's just not illegal. It's just not illegal. And, you know, if it were, then, you know, frankly, there'd be a lot more trials like this in, in Washington. And that's not what this was supposed to be about. The judge warned everyone, 
that the 2016 election was not being really litigated in this trial. It was just about the lie. It or, was just about this lie, correct. Or, or which the jury said he did not do. Right. Um, how does the Durham investigation compare with the Mueller probe? Well, you know, Durham's been going now for over three years. Uh, this is his third case. One was pleaded guilty. This is the first trial. We have another one coming up in October of uh, someone who helped do some of the research in the infamous uh, Steele dossier. Uh, by comparison, uh, Robert Mueller uh, spent uh, just under two years investigating the Trump-Russia investigation. $32 million he spent. Uh, by the way, uh, Durham has spent about $3.8 million. But, you know, he managed to get, uh, you know, people like Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, uh, some major people around the Trump campaign either pleaded guilty or were found guilty at trial. So, uh, you can see that, you know, certainly what, if, you, if you make that comparison, Durham has fallen way short of what President Trump uh, and what Bill Barr wanted him to do, which is to unearth this great big uh, conspiracy, mm. right, between the deep state and the media to get the former president. All right. Evan Perez, thanks so much. Coming up next, that pending Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. What sources are telling only CNN about efforts to find who's responsible for one of the most significant leaks ever from inside the Supreme Court? Stay with us. In our politics lead, a CNN exclusive, the U.S. Supreme Court going to unprecedented new lengths to try to find the person who leaked the draft opinion, showing that the court is poised to overturn the nationwide nationwide right to an abortion in Roe v. Wade. Now law clerks are being asked to hand over their personal cell phone records as part of the probe, with some considering hiring attorneys as the investigation intensifies. That's potentially good advice. CNN's Joan Biskupic broke the story. She joins us live. Joan, what more are you learning about the probe? Yeah, well, this is this has really rattled those clerks. You know, it also shows that for the last four weeks since Chief Justice John Roberts launched this probe, they have not made sufficient progress to avoid taking this dramatic step. And what it's done, you know, as you said, this is a case that could reverse Roe v. Wade, half a century of privacy rights, the right to abortion. And so the court itself is trying to figure out who did this and to stop any other potential leaks. And this is what a lawyer who has handled appellate um, litigation told me about, you know, just what kind of advice he would give to law clerks who wonder, should I turn these over? This is somebody who is aware of the new demands on the clerks. And he said, in a different kind of setting, any government lawyer would have, any government employee would have already turned to a lawyer. That's what similarly situated individuals would do in virtually any other government investigation, and it would be hypocritical for the Supreme Court to prevent its own employees from taking advantage of that fundamental legal protection. Now, law clerks have put out feelers about what they should do. I'm wondering, you know, we don't know right now the breadth of what they're being asked to turn over or what they're being asked to sign. But this is a really dramatic step, and I think it just ratchets up the tension there all the more because you know what else they're deciding right now? Gun rights. Gun rights, religious liberty cases, and the right to abortion. Yeah, the number one advice I would give to anybody is lawyer up. But um, (laughs) uh, whatever your political persuasion. Joan, I want to ask you, the draft opinion leaked was dated February 10th. February 10th. Does that help narrow down the list of people who had access to the document, which didn't leak for months later? I think it adds to the mystery, Jake. What was going on with that document? If it had actually left the building around the time of February 10th, did it take two or three steps to get to Politico? Or was somebody holding on to it for an opportune time to let it leak to the media? 
I think that actually makes it more complicated for the justices to figure out how did it get out of the building and who carried it somehow to Politico. And I actually think it could be two or three steps to Politico. And maybe the actual target shouldn't be the law clerks who tend to be inside the lines kind of people, you know, to get to that job. Uh, There are other employees who are on that circulation and there are also spouses, relatives, friends, roommates. The possibilities are endless here, Jake. Interesting. All right, Joan Biskupik, thank you so much. Good scoop. Just as the temperatures turn up, a new warning of system overload, the region's most at risk of power blackouts in the United States this summer. That's next. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, wildfires and soaring temperatures this summer could strain the U.S. power system and even spark blackouts. The National National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's summer forecast predicts above average temperatures across much of the United States. And the area there you see in dark red, that's likely to be the highest. It's the same place where wildfires have been most destructive. CNN's Renee March reports on how extreme weather is overwhelming America's electrical grid. As wildfires burn and temperatures rise across the nation, a sobering new report warns the U.S. power system could buckle, triggering energy emergencies this summer. The upper Midwest and Mid-South along the Mississippi face the highest risk of blackouts. Texas, the West Coast and Southwest face an increased risk. The electric system is old, and so it's not designed to withstand the impacts of climate change. Extreme temperatures trigger a surge in demand, and that taxes the grid. An early heat wave has already knocked six power plants offline in Texas this month. In Oklahoma, heat also played a role in blackouts. It's like a walk-in freezer. And last year, the Texas power grid completely failed for days under a deep freeze. 246 people died. An energy crisis can become a public health crisis. It can become a food crisis. Yami Newell has seen the cascading effects of an unreliable power grid in her hometown of Chicago. For a wealthier family, if they have a power outage and all the food in their refrigerator goes bad, they may be able to go afford to go back to the store and replenish the coffers. For a family that's operating on a more restricted income, They might not be able to go back and refill the coffers. In her Bronzeville neighborhood on Chicago's south side, solar panels now dot the rooftop of a public housing complex. A short drive from there, a backup battery stores energy from those solar panels as well as natural gas generators, creating what the state energy company calls a microgrid. Without power, we're talking about uh, potential life-threatening situations. So, So this microgrid provides that backup to be able to deliver power even when the grid isn't there. The project is pending approval, but once it's operating, it can connect and share power with the main power grid. In the event of a blackout, it can disconnect and operate independently, tapping its stored battery energy to power the homes, police station, and hospital in the area for four hours. We have seen a reluctance on the part of many utilities to factor climate change into their planning processes because they say that the science around climate change is too uncertain. They're basing analysis for grid reliability and investments on historical averages because planning for extreme projections is more expensive. And so we're continuing to design and site facilities um, based on historic weather patterns that we know in the age of climate change aren't a good proxy for future conditions. 
As communities work to build a more resilient grid, Bronzeville is a possible blueprint for creating a backup for when climate wreaks havoc on the grid. And compounding the U.S. power grid supply and demand problem is drought. One U.S. grid regulator tells CNN there's been a loss of 2% of hydropower from the nation's dams due to low water levels. Add to that the rapid retirement of coal power plants, all while everything from toothbrushes to cars are electrified. Jake, I've spoken to so many energy experts. They all say the same thing. Adding more energy supply to the grid means adding more renewable energy. So... That's All right. One solution. Yeah, it's good to see a story like that that has a potential solution in it yeah. as well as a potential problem or existent problem. Renee March, thanks so much. Still ahead, sky-high prices for almost everything. The White House says inflation will be the top economic priority for them for the month of June. But weren't there warning signs well before now? Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, we need answers to growing scrutiny over the law enforcement response, or lack thereof, to the school shooting in Uvalde, including the decision to hold off on entering the classroom, a decision that so distressed Customs and Border Protection officers, they ultimately took matters into their own hands. Plus, this is what it looks like when thousands of people are allowed to leave their homes for the first time in 80 days in an authoritarian society. But the easing of COVID lockdown in one Chinese city is a long cry from freedom. And leading this hour, President Biden meeting today with key economic leaders, the Federal Reserve Chair and Treasury Secretary, to address inflation and the state of the economy as gas and other prices continue to surge. And as CNN's MJ Lee reports, this is part of a month-long White House effort to convince the public that the Biden administration is, in fact, working hard to address higher prices, even if most Americans feel otherwise. My top priority, and that is addressing inflation. President Biden once again trying to pivot to the American people's economic concerns. My plan is to address inflation. It starts with a simple proposition. Respect the Fed. Respect the Fed's independence, which I have done and will continue to do. Biden hosting Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell in the Oval Office as elevated prices across the country, including at grocery stores and at the gas pump, continue to frustrate American consumers. In a new Wall Street Journal op-ed, the president acknowledging that many Americans understandably feel anxious, but also trying to offer reassurance, writing that with the right policies, the U.S. can transition from recovery to stable, steady growth and bring down inflation. The president laying out a three-part plan of giving the Fed the space to act, finding ways to lower prices, boost production and address supply chain problems, and reducing the deficit. But the Biden administration under intense scrutiny on whether it did too little too late to proactively tackle inflation. Last summer, the president predicted that inflation would be a temporary problem. By late November, Fed Chairman Powell acknowledging that inflation is not transitory. It's probably a good time to retire that that, uh, word and try to explain more clearly what we mean. And trying to reassure the public that the central bank is sympathetic to U.S. consumers' concerns. We understand completely what they're going through. Now the Biden administration signaling that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Russia's war on Ukraine disabled not only gas prices and food prices, but also disrupted supply chains. We didn't foresee Delta. We didn't foresee Omicron. And so, yes, there have been unexpected uh, challenges which have disrupted the natural equal, getting us back to equilibrium, which would help bring down those prices. But I, we are optimistic. Forecasters expect that over the coming months, uh, inflation will ease. 
So those predictions from last year that inflation might be temporary or transitory, we are seeing that sort of come back to haunt the Biden White House now. And Brian Deese, uh, Biden's top economic advisor, was asked about that at the White House briefing just this afternoon. And he said that the economic recovery has been uncertain and unexpected. So what we're seeing is the White House uh, wary of trying to play the prediction game, but also trying to inject some optimism into the conversation. That is, of course, a very tough juggling act. Jake. All right, I'm Jake Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Let's get to CNN's Richard Quest. He's the host of Quest Means Business. Richard, this push by the White House comes as Americans' views of the economy remain deeply pessimistic. According to a new Gallup poll released today, only 14% of American adults rate the economic conditions as excellent or good. 46% call them poor. 39% rate them as only fair. Gallup went on to say, quote, Americans' economic pessimism took a turn for the worse this month. And it is likely the lowest it has been since the end of the Great Recession. Do you see this as a policy failure, a communications failure, both, neither? What do you think? It's a reality, Jake. The economy is okay, but it's not going gangbusters. There's very possibly going to be a recession on the horizon. And whichever way you look at it, Jake, interest rates are going up. Growth is going to slow Stocks will continue to be under pressure and eventually unemployment is going to rise. That is the way Jay Powell's medicine that he is putting forward is meant to work. There's no great mystery about this anymore. That's what's going to happen. Now, is it necessary? Yes, 8% inflation is too high for the United States economy. And the only way to get rid of it is to increase interest rates. There will be a deep, deep, deep political argument over whether or not the Biden stimulus package, which was introduced when the the administration took office, was too much, too rich, too frothy, and basically poured gasoline on flames. A survey that tracks consumer confidence, how optimistic or pessimistic consumers are regarding the economy, regarding the labor market, that was released today for the month of May. And while it is not as low as was expected, it's still down for the second consecutive month. Plans to buy appliances, homes, cars, all declined from the previous month. What What does that tell you? It tells me Americans are worried. There's the anxiety that the president talked about. And for good reason. It's estimated $5 trillion has been wiped off retirement accounts and savings accounts uh, as a result of asset falls. Now, look, those stock markets may have been well overvalued and we may have all been foolish for continuing to believe it could carry on uh, ad infinitum. But the reality is people are feeling poorer. They're going to start to feel more uncertain. It won't last forever, but there are some very difficult months ahead as Americans get used to the idea of higher interest rates to bring down very high inflation. All right, Richard Quest, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's turn down to CNN's economics commentator, Catherine Rampell. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Ahead of the president's meeting with the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, Biden came out with this op-ed in the journal that said, quote, among other things, the Federal Reserve has a primary responsibility to control inflation. My predecessor demeaned the Fed and past presidents have sought to influence its decisions inappropriately during periods of elevated inflation. I won't do this, unquote. So let me ask you, what can Biden do that he has not already done? I am delighted to see the president emphasize the political independence of the Fed. First off, I just want to praise him for that. Very important to do. Uh, He's right that his predecessor did the opposite. Um, 
There are limited tools that the president of the United States has available to deal with prices, right? The president doesn't control macroeconomic trends, doesn't control inflation, but there are some things he could do, things like liberalizing trade, right? Trump imposed a ton of tariffs. Um, you could, they were condemned widely by Democrats at the time. Biden could unilaterally repeal some of those. It would have a modest one-time effect on prices, for example. The immigration system uh, was also sabotaged by Trump, uh, further complicated and backed up by the pandemic. That's contributing to the labor shortages we see today, which are in turn feeding into inflation. The administration has been really slow in uh, working to repair some of those problems, which again, um, they didn't they weren't caused by him. But there were some relatively easy steps that they could have taken a while ago uh, just to try to get the system back up and running so that you have more seasonal workers, uh, for example, right now. You have more workers in lots of fields where there are currently labor shortages. Yeah. And f- for whatever reason, they have been dragging their feet. Well, why do you think what do you think the reason is? Is it because I, I, it's very easy to see Republicans criticizing either of those moves as soft on China or soft on the border is is that what's going on here? I, I think that's part of it. I think the administration was in denial for a long time about the problems of inflation, thinking that in, the threat of inflation was itself inflated by the media or by Republicans or what have you. These kinds of measures carried some near-term political risk at the very least. Why bother to take that risk if inflation was going to go down on its own, if it was going to be transitory? Um, and, and even today, I think that they have they have continued to drag their feet in part because they're really worried about this very near term uh, potential political blowback. You know, they'll get a few days of bad headlines, for example, if they repeal some tariffs on China or otherwise. I mean, we tariff a lot of things that are not from China, like solar panels, for example. Those were put in place by Trump. Um, my view is rather than optimizing for what polls well today, they should be optimizing for what will poll well Come November, right, if these kinds of measures could even have a modest impact bringing down prices, which I think that they could. They're not going to you know, get us back to where we were, but they would have a modest impact. Uh, that will be helpful to Democrats come November. But I, I fear that they are so worried about, um, you know, Republicans attacking them for open borders or soft on China or what have you. They're not really thinking longer term about the consequences of not taking every possible action they can to deal with inflation. So former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers uh, was one of the first to or one of the first people on the left, uh, even if he's kind of more in the center, to to raise the alarm about inflation. A year ago, he warned that the one point nine trillion dollar American rescue plan Uh, would be a problem. He said at the time, quote, while there are enormous uncertainties, there's a chance that macroeconomic stimulus on a scale closer to World War II levels than normal normal recession levels will set off inflationary pressures of a kind we've not seen in a generation. Given the commitments the Fed has made, administration officials' dismissal of even the possibility of inflation and the difficulties in mobilizing congressional support for tax increases or spending cuts, there is the risk of inflation expectations rising sharply. Now, as you note, there are other issues, including the supply chain problem because of the pandemic and the pandemic itself. But why was the White House in such denial, so refusing to listen to what Larry Summers was saying? It wasn't just the White House, to be fair. Most economists disagreed with Larry Summers at the time. I mean, the Fed's projections, for example, for what inflation were going to look like uh, were, were, in retrospect, much too optimistic. So, and, and, and major forecasters on Wall Street, etc. So this was a widely uh, made error uh, a year ago. 
as the year wore on, I mean, I made it too, by the way. I, I did not expect inflation to get as bad as it did. As the year wore on, however, it became harder to deny that inflation was not going to be transitory, that these supply chain issues were taking much longer to unwind than anybody thought, that the um, juicing of demand, both by the American Rescue Plan as well as expansionary Fed policy, monetary policy, those things were combining to have much longer, uh, more lasting inflation than expected. And then, of course, we got hit with a bunch of really unlucky shocks in the last several months. So this is not only about choices made last year. You also have the war in Ukraine. You have the lockdowns in China related to COVID. You have an avian flu. You have a drought in California. A bunch of things that besides the geopolitical consequences, have also disrupted commodity markets, among other things, um, and have made inflation worse. So, you know, it's like one thing after another. There was too much optimism last year. Everything had to go right. Not everything went right. And and here's where we are. And Catherine, before you go, I just want to ask, we've heard a lot of sound uh, and blame and finger pointing from the White House about corporations being greedy, that that's the reason prices are going up. Uh, You know... Corporations are always greedy. It's called profit maximizing. The, the question we want to ask is why have prices been, why have they been able to act on that greed today when they weren't two years ago when inflation was very low, when profits were, were falling? The answer has to do with supply and demand. And I just think uh, it is at best a distraction and, and irrelevant sort of demagogic, demagoguery claim uh, to talk about corporate greed. At worst, I fear that it is encouraging Democrats to um, to not pursue the kinds of actions I was talking about that would be helpful and potentially pursue ones that could be actively harmful. If you look at some of the legislation that Elizabeth Warren and others have have introduced in Congress recently that are in response to this corporate greed, profiteering, price gouging, whatever you want to call it, narrative, you know, they're they're basically about setting price controls or um, new kinds of taxes that would probably discourage mm-hmm. oil production right now. So. I, I just think this is a really unhelpful narrative that the populist left has doubled down on rather than thinking through what's causing inflation and therefore what might be able to, to help alleviate it. All right. You want, might want to stay off social media for the next uh, couple uh, of hours. I know. Catherine I know. You see my feed. Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> we appreciate your take. Uh, how some Ukrainians in the eastern part of the country are publicly but silently protesting the Russian occupation. Then new audio from during the Uvalde shooting is raising more questions about what law enforcement officers knew and when they knew it, stay with us. Now to our national aid saying goodbye. The Uvalde, Texas community coming together for the first funerals for the victims of the school shooting. Services being held today for Amory Joe Garza and Maite Rodriguez. They were only 10 years old. Today, the Texas Teachers Union marching to Texas Senator Ted Cruz's office in Austin. Teachers calling on the senator to work to pass gun reform measures that would make classrooms safer. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Uvalde, where the police response is under more scrutiny. Pray for us, sinners. One week ago, 19 families sent their children to school, and they never came home, leaving loved ones only memories. As community members, even Matthew McConaughey, whose hometown is Uvalde, come to pay their respects. Those close to the 21 killed can't help but think about those last moments as they prepare to lay their own to rest. Her classmate said that she was brave, that she was grabbing all the other students and telling them where to hide before the gunman turned on her, but that she was so brave and courageous to tell the kids 
to hide. The funeral for that 10-year-old girl, Maite Rodriguez, is tonight. A heartbroken community attending five services today. Two funerals and three visitations for four children and one teacher among the 21 killed. As more details come to light, it's unclear at what point during the shooting this video was taken. The apparent radio call was videotaped by a man who told CNN he heard the dispatch from the radio of a Customs and Border Patrol vehicle outside the school. Are you The radio traffic audio adding new concerns about what law enforcement knew during that hour they were still waiting to enter the classroom and before they killed the gunman. One off-duty Customs and Border Patrol agent ran to the school when he heard about shots fired. The kids, uh, the police were breaking out the windows on the outside, and the kids were jumping out through the window. Officials say at least two children called 911 multiple times, begging police to come while the gunman was still inside their classroom. The information's flowing in. Why doesn't DPS have that information? The sheriff's office, the federal guys, the, pol the local police. This is a failure at every level. The Texas Department of Public Safety director says one child told a 911 operator eight or nine students were still alive. Audio from an unconfirmed source revealing at some point law enforcement was aware kids were inside the classroom. At what point do people not use some common sense here, listen to 911 calls that are coming in, understand that kids are still alive inside, and know that they have to go in there, do their jobs under the active shooter protocol? The families now left with more questions than answers as they focus on the lives that are lost. She isn't just another victim, but she's a hero. And that 10 years wasn't enough. And the funeral for young Maite is set to begin within a few hours. It's, of course, part of what is going to be a long and solemn process here in this area. Even today, as I walked around, it was hard to find anyone who wasn't connected to this. If not directly, they knew someone who was. They grew up with someone who was. They went to school at Robb Elementary. So while we will see families mourning at these funerals, it is not an understatement at all to say it will be a community that is right there mourning with them. Jake. All right. Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now is Jonathan Wackrow. He's a former Secret Service agent. He was a CNN law enforcement agent. Jonathan, good to see you. The Uvalde School Police Chief, Pete Arredondo, was the one who made the decision to stand back and wait for reinforcements before telling officers to try to breach the classroom. Do you think this decision, which does not stand up to the facts or the light of scrutiny, do you think he could even face some criminal liability for that decision? Listen, uh, I'll, I'll let that uh, be determined by the lawyers, but that decision, Jake, is going to haunt those parents who lost their children on that day. Again, it goes against every protocol around hostile assailant or active shooter uh, procedures that law enforcement knows. The reality is in modern day policing, active shooter situations are almost routine calls. And you know, nationwide, Officers know how to respond to that. So why in this critical incident was there such a failure, a failure of leadership, command and control, not to follow that protocol? What was your response? Wolf Blitzer interviewed a police spokesman last week, and, and the policeman, when asked why they didn't rush the, school, rush the, the classroom, said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, um, because the officers could get hurt, the officers 
could get shot, could get killed. What was your response to that? What do you, uh, shock. Shock that a member of law enforcement would use that excuse. A member of law enforcement that even had a pocket knife had more ability to attack that aggressor, the person that was actively killing children, than the defenseless children that were in that room. The first priority of responding officers is to stop that attack in the killing that's in progress. They have a moral and ethical duty to draw fire away from defenseless individuals, in this case, children, and draw that fire to themselves. That's the job that they chose. And the fact that these officers, whether it was you know by design, whether they were restricted from breaching that room or otherwise, they had to act and they didn't. And my assessment is that that lack of action cost lives on that day. Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez told CNN's Dana Bash uh, on Sunday that the police chief never gave the command to enter the classroom, but Customs and Border Protection agencies eventually got frustrated and just did it on their own. We know some officers were on the scene for more than an hour. Should they, too, have bucked the chief's decision and, and sooner? Absolutely. One hundred percent. Because there was a breakdown of the incident command structure. Obviously, there were people like the Border Patrol agents that ended up breaching that room. They knew better, right? They knew that there were children inside that room and they were the defenders of those children. And they weren't going to let a door stand in their way of potentially saving lives. We needed to have action much quicker than we did. And again, I am stunned at a lot of the, the points of failure on how this critical incident was managed one week ago. Take a listen to this sound of an off-duty CBP, Customs and Border Protection Agency agent, who was able to go inside the school on the day of the shooting. His wife worked at Robb Elementary. Take a listen. I was able to go, go in, and I announced who I was and made my way through. As I was going in, I could just see kids coming out of the windows and kids coming, coming my way, so I was just helping all the kids out. I was trying to contact my wife, see where my wife was at, try to make my way towards the door. I wasn't, like I said, I didn't have any of my gear. I was off duty. Um, so I didn't go in. So this is an off-duty agent allowed in when other parents and other loved ones were standing outside the school at the time, some of them even reportedly uh, being handcuffed uh, or, or sprayed with some sort of uh, agent. Um, what's your response? Listen, again, this is a, a, a clear example of the complete breakdown of the incident command structure. The fact that the public was allowed to get so close to this critical incident site is shocking to me. It breaks uh, all these protocols. What should have happened is they should have established a family reunification center and then set perimeters uh, around this critical site. They just didn't do that. Again, we have to look back. This is why the, the critical response review by the Department of Justice is so critical because we have so many unanswered you know, questions right now, Jake, that, that need to be answered. And they need to be answered, one, so we can you know, take lessons learned and become better, but we also need answers for the family. They need closure. They need to know why their child died. And that's part of the grieving process. And this is why it's so critical that we get to the truth around this. Yeah. I don't know if there's ever going to be a good answer, but I understand what you mean. Jonathan Blankrow, thank you so much for your, your time and your expertise. Coming up, why Ukrainians hope these yellow ribbons scare the Russians. That's next.
Turning to our world lead now as the battle for the East intensifies. Ukrainian officials say Russian forces are focused on establishing control over the city of Severodonetsk, forcing civilian evacuations to be suspended as Ukraine's military says Putin's troops now control most of that city. CNN's Melissa Bell reports on the ways that Ukrainians living in Russian-occupied parts of the country are attempting to resist. An explosion in the southern Ukrainian city of Melitopol, blamed by Moscow on Ukrainian resistors. And on Sunday, Melitopol is Ukraine, chanted in the heart of a town that's been in Russian hands for nearly three months. Yellow ribbons more defiantly displayed than elsewhere in Russian-held southern Ukraine. From Crimea to Kherson, symbols of silent resistance. But Melitopol's noisily resisted from the start. After the early chants of its people were silenced, and when the town's mayor was kidnapped by Russian forces in early March, some locals turned to armed resistance. It was a very dangerous situation. Now in Ukrainian government-held Zaporizhia, Ivan Fedorov says Melitopol will never give up. They can kidnap, they can kill, they can't uh, make some tortures, but we, we can't give support because our citizens don't want to live in Russia. I know it. Melitopol will return to Ukraine. Melitopol fell quickly. And even as Russian forces pulled back to the south and east of the country, remained on the wrong side of a line that has hardened. Russia is using hybrid methods of occupation. That means the Russian Federation is trying to identify and destroy centers of resistance, Ukrainian partisans. Such people are often uncovered and will sometimes disappear in Russian prisons. Idea of the yellow ribbon was. Which is why the yellow ribbon movement has become key, according to its spokesman in Kyiv. He tells me the ribbons allow people to pass on the message that Ukraine is present here, that there is no other south than under the Ukrainian flag. Here in Zaporizhia, there's also a sense that that line between Russian-controlled Ukraine and the rest of the country is hardening even as it continues to move forward. We can hear here the regular sound of outgoing artillery fire, but we can also see an emerging refugee crisis. Hundreds of families living in their cars as they try to get back to their homes, now in Russian-controlled cities. Now, Jake, in a further sign that that line between the two Ukraines may be hardening today, we've been hearing that communications for those Ukrainians living in Russian-controlled cities have been cut off. They're being told to buy Russian SIM cards. And that's why you're seeing the counteroffensive uh, uh, near Kherson with Ukrainian forces trying to push that line back, fighting for Severodonetsk even now. And you're likely to see even more resistance in those uh, lands in Russian hands just to the 30 kilometers to the south of where I'm standing. Not just the peaceful kind in the shape of these yellow ribbons, but the armed resistance as well. What we heard from the mayor of Melitopol is that since the start of the war, Jake, there have been hundreds of Russian soldiers killed in that city by resistors. All right, Melissa Bell in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Could one sticker sum up the White House's problem with soaring gas prices? That sticker next. 
In our politics lead, a new Gallup poll shows only 13% of Americans say the economy is good, down from 18% in April, 20% in March. This is the lowest since the end of the Great Recession in 2009. Poll also found, when asked the open-ended question, what is the biggest problem facing America today? The second most common response was inflation after bad leadership. Our panel joins us now. These are some bad omens <laughs> in the party. Uh, uh, Jonah, let me start uh, with your take on President Biden's Wall Street Journal opinion article titled My Plan for Fighting Inflation. He says, uh, partly, quote, the job market is the strongest since the post-World War II era with 8.3 million new jobs, the fastest decline in unemployment on record, and millions of Americans getting jobs with better pay. The U.S. is in better economic position than almost any other country. I mean, the, the, the numbers are accurate, yeah. but that's not what the American people think. Yeah, it's, it's always fraud. Lots of presidents have tried to do this, have tried to explain to the American people or the voters, don't believe your lying eyes. You actually, you know, you shut up and like it, right, is sort of the, the, the approach. And I think it's particularly fraught for the Biden White House, in part because inflation is so out of their control. It's just a difficult thing for any president to handle. If what he should probably do is focus like a laser on something like supply chain thing, which is actually a more concrete logistical problem, which would help with inflation, but it would also look like he's doing something. But, uh, you know, there was this amazing piece in NBC that NBC reported today where, where Joe Biden is basically like Eeyore and just doesn't understand why. Every president becomes Eeyore. <laughs> Very quickly. And it's really amazing. Sometimes more quickly than most. But yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, Karen, as Americans drive back from the holiday weekend today, the national average price for gas, yeah. $4.62, that's up. 44 cents from a month ago, up a dollar and 57 cents from last year at this time. Uh, take a look at this sticker of Biden on a gas pump in rural Pennsylvania <laughs> over the weekend, uh, shot by one of our senior producers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, what does it say? I did that. I did that. Yeah. I did that. Pointing yeah. to the gas prices. That's in that's in swing state uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, you heard Catherine Rampell talk about earlier that there are things he could do, but they might be politically short-term fraught. He could get rid of the tariffs on, on China and other countries. Mm-hmm. He could bring in more immigrants uh, to this country to deal with the, some of the labor shortage. Yep. But there is a political risk. Sure. Look, I think that's part of what he was trying to do in this op-ed was to say, I have a plan. Here's what I want to do. And going back to something he said, frankly, during the State of the Union, what's your plan to the Republicans? And sort of tried to draw the contrast with what we've seen from the Republicans, which is the Rick Scott, let's raise taxes on people who are making under $100,000. Well, he, he just said, let's raise taxes on everybody. Everybody should everybody. be paying taxes. Everybody should be everybody paying, should be paying taxes. Right. taxes. But the point being, look, I think, you know, as we know, the, there's not a lot the president can do. So he's doing what he can do. And that is to say, I have a plan. Here's what I want to do. And here's who's standing in the way, which it is at this point the Republicans in Congress who are not interested in lowering costs, who have not shown any interest in, he did talk about addressing supply chain issues. He has talked about reducing dependence on foreign oil. That's the best he can do. And the last thing I'll say is... You don't buy it. Well, I mean, it was also the Democrats who didn't want to play along. I mean, when he's laying out all of his plans in that Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed, it's essentially Build Back Better, right? And we know what happened to Build Back Better. Uh, It ran into Joe Manchin. Uh, who was worried about, guess what, inflation. Mm-hmm. And so uh, blaming Republicans, not exactly what happened. Um, he is out of options in so many ways when you think about these massive problems that Americans encounter every day when they go to the grocery store, when they go to the gas pump. And they've been feeling this way for a while. I mean, 
you, you talk about the gas prices being high yeah. really since last year, and Americans have been experiencing that. So Biden is trying to change how people feel, and letting, that's really hard. You're letting Republicans off the hook by saying it was just Joe Manchin. That's one guy out of 100. If some of the Republicans would have been willing to join, we maybe could have gotten some things passed. And look, politically speaking, your best bet at this point is to try to draw that contrast with the Republicans and say, this is what they want to do, this is what I want to do. In the context of inflation, saying if we only got Republicans to go along with spending four or six trillion more dollars or whatever it was, or a billion more dollars, it just the problem is, is that you get like the policies that we already got, according to Larry Summers and others, are why we got inflation in the first. So, Lee, and the, the, one of the problems here also for, for President Biden is we are now in the post Memorial Day yeah. part of the mm-hmm. summer. Like, where summer is starting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it hasn't officially started. Everybody calm down on Twitter. <laughs> but, but the unofficial start of summer has begun. Yeah. And people are, if they haven't already tuned out, they're going to be tuning out from now until Labor Day, and gas prices are just going to keep going up and up and up. And they're, su- they're going to feel it in their summer vacations. They might not. They're it, not only car trips, but their flights are extremely expensive right now. Everything they try to do for fun this summer is going to be more expensive. And then when that unofficial summer ends in Labor Day, that's when campaign season really gears up. And that is already going to have set the stage for what happened this summer leading in till November. And Jonah, you talked about the supply chain stuff. There is one thing that Congress is working on uh, to address the supply chain is this America Competes USICA legislation that is stalled right now. There are negotiations between Republicans and Democrats in the House and the Senate to address some of these problems, and they haven't been able to get it through these negotiations. And President Biden hasn't been talking about that lately either. And so perhaps that is one area where he could actually engage and give Democrats and actually the country a big win if Republicans and Democrats can get this done. Speaking of big wins, I never hear him talk, I never hear anybody talk about the infrastructure. infrastructure. And, the, the, and Lord knows we talked about it around the table. Giant, yes. giant investment yeah. in broadband and bridges and roads. Never hear any. You know, I mean, seriously, just stepping away from it. Right. It was bipartisan. A very sizable uh, legislative accomplishment. Yeah, you're right. And it was supposed to be, you know, paired with Build Back Better and it was supposed to jumpstart yeah. the economy and do all sorts of great things. Uh, and you heard for a time Biden saying he was going to go out across the country and barnstorm and, you know, ribbon cutting and bridges being built and all that stuff. They haven't you know really who's doing that it? instead? Republican governors. Yeah, this is part of the problem, the word bipartisan, because both parties don't want to campaign about how they can work with the other party. If you go around bragging about how you can work with the other party, it undermines the base mobilization rhetoric that they're trying to use to get their own base out. The Ukraine aid package was the most earth-shattering bipartisan legislative accomplishment you can imagine with huge buy-in from Republicans. No one's bragging about the rebirth of bipartisanship because they're all messaging about turning out their own base and how the other party is evil. No, but the infrastructure package does give them something very concrete, not to play on words, to talk about and to show, as you were talking about, ribbon cuttings. Here's where the new bridge is going to be. Here's where the, you know, we're going to build a new school, what what have you. So I think you're seeing members do it in their individual races, and you're right, Republican governors. And it's definitely something Democrats need to talk about more. And again, try to frame it in a context, because politically there's just not a lot you can do. I agree with what Catherine said to you, by the way. Do everything you can, even if it's politically risky, so that people feel like you're trying to change the equation a little bit. Because as we know, a lot of these things, we're not going to feel the benefit of them for quite some time. So you've got to feel like he's trying to do something. Do you think that, that, it's, that the Republicans, that the momentum is so strong right now against the party in power, which is the Democrats, White House, House and Senate, that, that 
the Senate is seriously in play? The Senate is seriously in play. I mean, Leader McConnell said that today. He thinks that as long as we put in good candidates, the Senate is absolutely going to be in play. And of course, that comes to how depends on how these primaries turn out. But Republicans are very pleased with how things are. And I hear every single day and have been hearing this for the past several months. We wish the election was today. Of course, anything can happen in the next four to five months. But the environment is so good for them, they think that it's, it's a good chance for them. All right, thanks to our panel. Trying to escape at the first chance they get, people walking dozens of miles with their suitcases after Shanghai starts easing restrictions after an 80-day lockdown. Stay with us. In our health lead, daily COVID cases in the United States are five times higher than this time last year. Five times. Data from Johns Hopkins University shows U.S. average daily COVID cases were 21,000 at the end of May 2021, compared to nearly 107,000 a day now. Hospitalizations are slightly up from last year, but deaths are lower. In China, COVID restrictions are starting to ease in some Shanghai neighborhoods that have endured a brutal months-long lockdown. CNN's Selena Wang takes a closer look. Sprinting with shopping bags, residents racing to get out. After more than two months of a brutal citywide lockdown, Shanghai is finally cracking open the seal. The city's main train station packed with people trying to escape. But actually getting out of here is a treacherous journey. The city says it will fully resume transportation today. But earlier, people have been seen trekking miles across highways, dragging their luggage or strapping it to bikes. Even journeys of dozens of miles or more not swaying their determination. The train station parking lot has become a campsite, some leaving days earlier than their departure time, terrified they could be locked down again if they stay at home. The masses outside the train station, a stark contrast to the rest of Shanghai. Hundreds of thousands still remain locked in. But even the lucky ones allowed out face a laundry list of restrictions. There are checkpoints everywhere. No, this is definitely not freedom. This Shanghai resident and her son, who wished to remain anonymous for fear of persecution from authorities, were finally allowed out after more than 80 days. Her only solace is seeing her son outside and smiling for the first time in a long time. My child now has depression um, because of the lockdown. He started waking up at night and crying and shouting and saying there were people wearing masks in his bedroom and he stopped eating. That harsh reality, miles away from what the government wants to show. Watch this state TV reporter pull the microphone and camera away during a live interview when the resident starts to complain about the lockdown. She says, I've never lived through anything like this, being locked inside your home and not allowed to go out. What a big joke. Officials say the city will start returning to normal in June, but residents are doubtful. So this does feel like endless endless nightmare. Her freedom lasted less than a week. One COVID case was found near her, so she's back to lockdown. For over two months, Shanghai has had its freedom taken away. Residents imprisoned at home or forced into quarantine centers like these. No one knows when this nightmare will fully end. 
Jake, people in Shanghai, they are relieved, but they're also in huge disbelief. They have really been left traumatized by this months-long lockdown, and it's really eroded people's trust in the government. And even though most of Shanghai's 25 million are finally able to step outside today, hundreds of thousands still remain locked inside. And these past few months have really been a wake-up call to Shanghai that in authoritarian China, even if you live in the country's wealthiest, most cosmopolitan city, your freedoms could be taken away in an instant. There is no assurance here, Jake, that all of this won't happen again. Selena Wang in Beijing, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Moviegoers feeling the need, the need for speed. What Top Gun Maverick may tell us about the future of film. Stay with us. Just want to manage expectations. Audiences are finally flocking back to movie theaters, at least to catch Tom Cruise's Top Gun Maverick. The sequel to the kind of cheesy 1986 blockbuster has made an estimated $156 million for its four-day opening weekend, boosting hopes for summer cinema revival. That is the highest opening ever before or after COVID for a Memorial Day weekend. Congratulations. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.